thank you very much. It's a true honor to be here. Uh, this is, in my estimation, the best Iranian studies program in the world at the moment. And a uh, fantastic team led by Dr. Milani. And uh, we hope to have him over on the other side of Georgetown next week if he consents to come. But I, I really am honored to be here. This is a fantastic program. I always get envious of you when I look at the lists of activities here. So today I want to talk about um, what I call mutual radicalization. And I want to start by focusing on a puzzle, a puzzle about human beings. I'm a psychologist and I focus on human thinking and human action. And for me, there are a couple of puzzles at the moment. For example, how is it that Iran and the United States have managed to arrive at a point where they can't even communicate with one another properly. How is it that after so many cycles of conflict in the Middle East, Israel and Palestine are still far apart? How is it that just very recently we had another government shutdown? We humans seem to be irrational in the sense that we don't seem to be able to act in a way that is logical and for our own interests. Why is this? So that's the puzzle I want to attack. And my strategy is to focus on collective processes. Most psychologists, particularly in the United States, give priority to individual processes. Most of psychology in its history has been an examination of the individual mind. I turn this upside down. For me, the important psychology is collective psychology. For me, the most important processes are collective processes. In this, I follow uh, the teachings, particularly of Vygotsky, a Russian psychologist, and also thinkers like Wittgenstein, who focus on the social. For me, the social comes first. Before we are born into this world as helpless babies, there is already a social world strongly structured with strong guidelines for what we should do and what we should think. So for me, cognition, individual thinking, comes after social processes and social thinking. And in this discussion, I want to focus on what I call mutual radicalization. And you'll see, I hope everyone has this outline. 
It's a process of reciprocal extremism. <coughs> reciprocal extremism. Most discussions of radicalization are about an individual or group radicalizing. For me, in order to understand radicalization, we have to look at the reciprocal relationship. You radicalize in relation to something else. You radicalize against something else. So it's that mutual aspect that I'm focusing on. When the actions of one group triggers a more extreme response in a second group. And this triggers further radicalization in the first group. So it is a process of interaction where one group is interacting with another, triggering increasing radicalization. And this is an irrational process. Now, what do I mean by irrational process? There are two kinds of rationality I want to talk about. One is the classic Freudian irrationality. You remember that Freud discusses irrationality as involving repression, that we repress material into an unconscious. But modern cognitive research has given us another way to look at the same phenomenon. This phenomenon where human beings act in ways that is against their own interests and are not aware of what they are doing and why. Now this alternative approach is represented by the research of people like Daniel Kahneman. You might have come across his best-selling book, Thinking Fast and Slow. So irrationality here has at least two meanings. One is the classic Freudian approach. The second is the new cognitive approach. Radicalization has not received attention from psychologists in the collective sense. So that's what I'm turning to now. What is not my focus? My focus is not the typical types of competition we get between countries. For example, Canada and the United States have some level of competition. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm getting at collective processes where there is mutual radicalization and pushing the countries further apart, as has happened, for example, in the case of Iran and the United States. In this project, I selected 10 case studies. And under number six, I set out why I selected those particular case studies. The first types of case studies reflect the cultural clash between Islam and the West. And I've included Israel as part of the West. So I looked at Israel-Palestine, I looked at Iran-United States, <coughs> I looked at America-Islamic Jihad, I also looked at Islamic Jihad and <coughs> Europe. So I'm looking at 
Islam and the West. The second type of example, case studies I've selected, one is China and Japan. That's a very important rivalry where there is increasing radicalization. Uh, I, over the last few years, I've traveled in Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines. The countries in that region, including Japan, there's a lot of anxiety about the growth of China. And we now have increasing arming in both China and Japan. So that is one case study. Another case study is North and South Korea, which is more obvious. I also looked at Pakistan and India. Now, as you know, since independence, Pakistan and India have fought three major wars, and they are now again in conflict over Kashmir. So that's a very dangerous situation with two nuclear powers. And the third type of case study I looked at are case studies domestic to the United States. I looked at gun control, the NRA and gun control groups. I looked at a case of uh, Trump and Sanders. Uh, you remember that uh, the Tea Party and the um, Occupy Wall Street groups, they were very active against each other. And I looked at a case of what I call gridlocracy in American politics, that is, uh, the shutdown during the Obama era, which is really uh, a sort of uh, stepping stone to the shutdown we had very recently. Through these case studies, I identified different aspects of mutual radicalization. And I want to emphasize that in this process, we are looking at situations where the collective is pushing, and the individual, even though the individual can rationally work out a solution, individuals who are rational are overpowered by the group. For example, in Washington at the moment, and during the shutdown, I could find lots of individual Democrats and Republicans who could sit down and find a solution. If you look at a situation like the Middle East, uh, I used to be director of the Conflict Resolution Program and, um, at Georgetown, and we used to have exercises where we would bring individual Israelis, individual Palestinians, and we could always find solutions. The difficulty is when the collective is embarking in mutual radicalization, and the individual is suffocated by the collective. That's the process I'm looking at. The case studies I examined led to a model of mutual radicalization. Of course, we psychologists always have to have models. 
If you turn to the last page, what I was doing is identifying, first of all, the broad processes involved, and I identified three main stages. One is group mobilization. When the leadership mobilizes the group against the outgroup, identifies the outgroup as the enemy, and that's the start of the process. And within that, I identified four sub-steps. The second main stage is extreme in-group cohesion. During this second stage, what you find is that the more extreme, aggressive leaders come to the forefront. The more extreme followers come to the forefront. So there's a radicalization of both leadership and followership. Very importantly, conformity and <coughs> obedience increases. Now, there's a lot of psychological research on conformity and obedience. Um, some of the best research exactly done here by Professor Zimbardo. What we know is that when groups mobilize against an enemy, conformity within the group increases. It becomes very difficult to speak out against the group policy when the group has an enemy. That's why during wartime, dissenters are punished so strongly. It becomes very difficult to go against the line of the leadership. Obedience increases during conflict, when the leader gives an order, disobedience seems to be disloyalty to the group. So, the person who speaks out and says, maybe we shouldn't be going to war, or maybe we shouldn't be doing this, they get punished very fast. So this mobilization at the second stage involves increasing conformity and increasing obedience. The third stage involves a transformation in identity. That is, the members of each group come to see themselves as people with a different identity. Who are we? We are the kinds of people who hate those people. Part of our identity is that we fight them. And especially in long-term mutual radicalization, as has happened in uh, the Middle East, for example, the identity of each side becomes transformed. So who they are becomes defined in terms of their hatred and opposition to the other group. So the third level is a transformation of identity. 
What I try to do studying these case, cases is to identify particularly the cognitive processes underlying the broad mutual radicalization taking place. At a first level, categorization and categorical thinking takes place. Categorical thinking is where the world is divided into us and them. There is no in-between. We are good, they are bad. And if you listen to the fundamentalists in Iran, the fundamentalists in the United States, you get the same rhetoric. It is a categorical point of view. There is no in-between. Categorical thinkers typically have very little tolerance for ambiguity. They can't see the gray in between. The other aspect of this is the construction of meaning and identity that takes place. We know from research on what's called the minimal group paradigm that we don't need major differences between groups for people to construct identities of the outgroup as enemy, of the outgroup as bad. All we have to do is listen to some of the rhetoric coming from uh, President Trump at the moment about people of the border, southern border. Uh, they are rapists, they are criminals, they are robbers coming here to do us harm. This kind of demonization of the outgroup is the rhetoric used to mobilize a core support in mutual organization. <coughs> Another aspect of mutual radicalization is what I call pathological hatred. And this is where mutual radicalization has reached its most intense levels. Pathological <coughs> hatred involves a situation where we are willing to suffer pain and humiliation and anything else as long as we hurt the other. As long as we hurt them, we're willing to suffer. And in some cases, mutual radicalization intensifies to reach this pathological hatred. Willingness to suffer yourself for your group to experience extreme hardship as long as the other group suffers. And of course, a classic example of this is when terrorists put on a bomb and say, I don't care if I die as long as I inflict pain on them. Unfortunately, in some situations, nations get to the stage of pathological hatred, where they say, we don't care how much it hurts us as long as we hurt them. And at the moment, the United States and Iran have got to this stage, where the two groups could logically work out differences but as long as they hurt each other, 
they will continue. That's the logic that they're following at the moment. By the way, I hope to stop in time for about 20 minutes of discussion. There, are, there is a large body of research on what's called motivated reasoning, motivated reasoning, showing how once we reach this stage of antagonistic identity transformation, this third stage that I'm discussing, once we reach that stage, the reasoning that we follow is motivated to show the opposite group as evil and to show them as wrong and horrible people and to justify our policies towards them. So motivated reasoning at this stage is where we selectively gather information in order to justify continuing the fight. I've listed under number 15 a number of the biases that cognitive psychologists have identified. For example, confirmation bias. We tend to favor information that confirms our biases. So if you look at the ways in which the leadership in countries like Iran and the United States interact, they selectively gather information that confirms their already established biases. The other aspect of this is the internet and the role of electronic media in mutual radicalization. If we look back 30 years, 20 years, there was a time where we were much more optimistic about the impact of the internet. There were discussions about how electronic communications, computers, would spread information and increase the possibility of democracy spreading around the world. Unfortunately, what has happened is that increasingly the internet is being used through echo chambers. That is, we are tending to express ideas to others who are similar in beliefs to us and they simply reflect what we believe. So we are developing echo chambers and within these echo chambers, we are endorsing the views that we believe in the first place. And of course, there are strong psychological reasons for this. One of those reasons is similarity attraction. We are attracted to others who believe in what we believe. We don't like to be contradicted. We don't like to have people disagree with us. We like people to say, yes, I think you're right. We hate it when people say, no, you're completely wrong. Where did you get that information? It's wrong. You know, I, I was explaining to 
Dr. Milani, that every week I, I do my best to listen to extreme right-wing radio shows and to read extreme uh, publications on the far right. Now, why do I do this? It's kind of self-torture. <laughs> but I do it because I want to know what they are thinking. <clears throat> Just as I read the newspapers, the official newspapers of the Islamic Republic of Iran, because I want to know what they're thinking. But it's extremely difficult. It's much easier to read material that I agree with. <laughs> but this is what has happened with the internet. We have tended to interact with others, even though they may be in Russia or China, we interact with others who agree with us. So we are developing these international echo chambers where we're not really coming across information that we don't already agree with. And this is part of the mutual radicalization where the communication becomes restricted. Other aspects of this are where each group, having reached this situation of mutual radicalization, they exaggerate the differences between groups and minimize differences within groups. So suddenly, all Iranians are the same and they're all over there, all Americans are the same, they're all over here, and the difference between them is vast. It's the same when we look at Israel-Palestine, Pakistan-India. I've done interviews with radical Pakistanis and radical Indians, and I remind them <coughs> they were one country. And they say, no, we're worlds apart. There's nothing similar. They deny similarities. This tendency to push the outgroup and to say they are different from us. Of course, this happens in our everyday lives. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Of course they are. <laughs> in this process, I'm emphasizing the manufacture of meaning by collectives. And an important role is played by what I call cultural carriers. Cultural carriers. Cultural carriers are means by which we propagate our values and ideas. They can be symbolic, they can be physical. For example, the national flag <coughs> is a cultural carrier. It's a piece of cloth that people say, I'm going to die for this flag. The hijab is a cultural carrier. It's a piece of cloth that some people are willing to die for it. The wall has become a cultural carrier where now we are fighting over whether something called a wall is going to be built or not. Are we rational in this? Well, the estimates are that the shutdown cost 
minimum 11 billion. What was the cost of the war? Something like 5 billion. So, we are taking the war as a cultural carrier and saying, we're going to fight over this. It doesn't matter if it costs us more. This is important. And of course, it is important because we give it importance. By the way, <clears throat> I see my work as very much in line with Janice's work on groupthink. If you remember, Janice did research on what he called groupthink, where if you have a bunch of very intelligent individuals, you can put them in one group and they can come out with some very stupid results. <laughs> How does it happen? Well, Janice went to uh, study the Bay of Pigs incident. He went to study uh, Johnson's decisions during the Vietnam War. And he saw that these, these very bright graduates of Stanford would go into meetings and come out with really idiotic solutions. <laughs> and his explanation was that in a collective, we often repress our ideas because we think, oh, the leader <coughs> seems to think differently. I better just shut up. Very much this same process of the rational individual being subsumed, overpowered by the collective process, which turns out to be irrational. So what is the solution? Here we are in the 21st century, still faced with these, what seem to be, very primitive processes where the collective takes over and the rational individual is overpowered. Well, in the last chapter to the book, I do suggest some uh, solutions. First of all, of course, uh, the issue of education comes up, and civic education. It's difficult to overestimate how important civic education is, and the fact that over the last half century, civic education in the United States has weakened. We have weakened civic education. What do I mean by civic education? I mean the kind of civic education that will nourish psychological citizens capable of supporting democracy, psychological citizens with the characteristics that allow them to participate as active citizens in a democracy. That requires individuals who are tolerant of ambiguity, individuals who are able to think beyond categories, individuals who are critical. Now, that's a first step. That's a first step. In addition to the more obvious issue of education, 
There is the issue of research on what's called extended categories and extended groups. There's a lot of research in psychology now demonstrating that we humans are capable, we are capable of expanding the in-group so that we can go beyond just seeing ourselves as from Kentucky or from Idaho. We can begin to see ourselves as Americans or as humans. We can extend the category of the in-group. And research shows that by working on this extension, we can come to solutions. How do we achieve this? Well, again, it is by, first of all, having leadership that can see this kind of goal as valuable. Leadership that uh, <coughs> believes it is possible to go beyond categories such as nationhood and religion. So there are actual solutions that we can find through psychological research. Categorical thinking and authoritarian thinking is the big problem at the moment. Let me finally say something about the research on authoritarian personalities. This is a very important area. It really started uh, growing after the Second World War when psychologists asked themselves what kinds of people supported Hitler what kinds of people voted for Mussolini? Because remember, Mussolini and Hitler were voted in. What kinds of people supported a regime that undertook the Holocaust? And in their research, they identified what they called the authoritarian personality. The authoritarian personality has a number of characteristics. For example, authoritarians tend to be submissive to strongmen. Authoritarians tend to, tend to be punitive towards minorities and those who are different. So we know the cluster of characteristics. And in the last 30 years, there's been a lot of research on what's called right-wing authoritarianism. Now, this research, again, is extremely useful. It's telling us when there is mutual radicalization, what types of individuals will mobilize and support the Khomeinis. They will support the strongmen into these radical positions. The only thing I would say critically of this research on right-wing authoritarianism is that it seems to me Authoritarians are not just right-wing. They're also left-wing. Uh, I always think I would hate to be in a regime where Stalin was the boss, uh, just as I would hate to be with Hitler being the boss. Uh, I didn't enjoy being in Khomeini's Iran, and I don't think I would enjoy being in, in um, uh, Cuba. 
Uh, I did visit Cuba about a, a year ago, and when they asked me what I was thinking, I said, well, I'm thinking that if I actually lived here, I would be looking for a paddle in the boat. <laughs> so I'll stop there so we can have discussions. Uh, thank you very much.